Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Terry's Mysterious Moments. Nobody could make sense out of what happened to the young man who was missing. It was all mixed up with black magic, white magic, drugs, Mestizo superstition, gringo hedonism, coincidence, and random selection. We had warned ourselves about this sort of thing many times and still didn't believe it. It was the curse of El Otro Lado, the other side. Antonio Zavaleta, an expert on curanderismo, Antonio Zavaleta, an expert on curanderismo, who teaches at Texas Southmost College in Brownsville, was sometimes called to the other side of the border to supervise ghost-busting. Look, said Zavaleta, who had taught sociology and anthropology to two members of the murderous gang responsible for victim A's death. That's what we'll call him, is victim A. He said, I'm a scientist. I have a Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Texas. But when I went over there... I put a cross around my neck. By the time victim A's body was found on April 11th at Rancho Santa Elena, his disappearance had been the subject of fascinated media speculation for a month. The 21-year-old university junior had gone to South Padre Island along with thousands of other students during spring break and had simply vanished one night in the border town of Matamoros. From the beginning, His disappearance seemed like an eerie and arbitrary event, a true mystery. When his fate was finally known, the mystery was even greater, because few of us were conditioned to accept the reality of human sacrifice to Satan. Human sacrifice was simply, for many of us, a plot device from low-budget splatter films or a relic story of the Mayan or Aztec societies, not something that really happened. Officials on both sides of the border began to suspect black magic a couple of weeks before the bodies of victim A and 14 others were discovered. A psychic had reported a vision in which his body appeared alongside what looked like a witch's cauldron. A Satanist in Brownsville had confessed to murdering the young man and burying his body on the beach, though under questioning, he recanted. 
when lawmen finally began to sort things out, the ritual killings seemed almost predestined. A map drawn some years ago by confessed mass killer Henry Lee Lucas had predicted with inexplicable accuracy that the bodies of victims of satanic rituals would be found about where victim A and others were found. The beginning of the end of the search for victim A was suitably bizarre. Serafine Hernandez Garcia, a nephew of the cruel and clever gangster boss Elio Hernandez Rivera, ran a routine roadblock on Sunday afternoon, April 9th, and stupidly led Federales to the ranch that his family used for its smuggling operations. He displayed none of the savvy that made his uncle the leader of a gang of smugglers and pistoleros who had terrorized Matamoros and the state of Tamaulipas for years. But he was no dummy either. Yet he went through that roadblock as if he believed himself to be invisible and bulletproof. That will come into play later. Later that same day, Federales started searching the Hernandez Ranch, Rancho Santa Elena. They had turned up just over 66 pounds of marijuana when one of them made a discovery that chilled his blood. To the unpracticed eye of any Norte Americano, it appeared to be an ordinary storage shed with some melted candles, cigar butts, and empty bottles on the floor, and some greasy cauldrons in the yard. But the Mexican cops saw something else. They saw a devil's temple, a place where black magic had been practiced. When they reported this astonishing news to their commandante, Juan Benitez Ayala, the investigation came to a screeching halt, much to the distress of American lawmen who believed that the smugglers knew something about the disappearance of the missing young man. But Benitez was adamant. The search could not resume until the black magic had been neutralized. Mexico has always been a country with a rich legacy of magic, born of the dynamic fusion between Christianity and ancient Indian religions, tracing back to the Aztecs, an enormous variety of strange and powerful herbs, potions, and amulets. Brujos, or shamans, worked the villages, casting spells or relieving them for small fees. Even in cities as large as Matamoros, ancient superstitions are a way of life. A maquiladoro previously was spared being shut down only because a curandero was able to dehex a piece of expensive machinery with which a worker had been seriously injured. Magic is omnipresent. The plot of a popular mid-80s primetime soap opera in Mexico, El Maleficio, the evil one, revolved around the premise that a wealthy businessman in Oaxaca was able to sustain power by praying nightly to Satan. Magic is also double-edged. For every evil, there is a counterbalancing good. American lawmen who had visited the office of the Comandante in Matamoros had noticed strings of garlic, strings of peppers, and white candles, articles commonly used in Mexico to ward off evil. It was no surprise then that Benitez called off the search until a curandero could be summoned to the ranch to cast out the demons. After the curandero did his magic, things happened fast. On Monday afternoon, a caretaker at the ranch identified a photograph of victim A 
and remembers seeing him handcuffed in the back of a Suburban in the equipment yard. In an interrogation room of the Matamoros Jail, Elio Hernandez Rivera, Seraphine Hernandez Garcia, and two other suspects who had been arrested at the ranch confessed to kidnapping victim A and witnessing his ritual sacrifice. Seraphine told investigators that he had buried the young man and he led the way to his grave, which was marked by a piece of wire sticking out of the ground. The other end of the wire was attached to the victim's spinal column so that when his body decomposed, members of the cult could pull out the vertebrae to make into a necklace. When his body was discovered, the Comandante noticed that his legs had been cut off above the knees and asked Seraphine if that was part of the ritual. No, Seraphine said. It just made him easier to bury. Seraphine had a baby face, a weak chin, and a Zapata-like mustache that seemed stuck to his face by accident. He was no peasant recently arrived on a wagon of maize. He was a spoiled suburban kid with a taste for designer jeans, tinted sunglasses, and fast American cars with cellular phones. Seraphine worked at gunpoint in the hot sun for hours, digging up bodies. He seemed to resent the forced labor, but was otherwise nonchalant remorseless, curiously, without passion. By mid-afternoon, a dozen corpses lay in a row. The story hit the wires before the last body had been exhumed. In a few hours, all the major television networks and most of the major news organizations on both sides of the border had dispatched teams of journalists. Several media outlets chartered planes. On the highway between Matamoros and Reynosa, Campesinos working in the corn and wheat fields of their ejidos, their communal farms, stopped and leaned on their hoe handles as jeep loads of federales raced by, closely followed by a stream of media vans and television satellite trucks. A boy herding scrawny Mexican cattle removed his hat until the procession had passed. Officials on both sides went out of their way to accommodate the media affecting coverage in their own peculiar styles. U.S. Customs agent Oren Neck was crisp and to the point. Drugs caused this to happen, he emphasized. Lieutenant George Gavito of the Cameron County Sheriff's Department was wry and laconic. When a reporter asked how the Federales had gotten confessions so quickly, Gavito pointed to a bottle of mineral water. Federales like to shake the bottle and squirt the water up the noses of reluctant witnesses. Press conferences were held twice daily in front of the courthouse in Brownsville, and politicians who had hurried to the valley to assist and to commiserate with the victim's family made their own agendas available. A Port Isabel legislator announced that he was introducing a law that would allow the killers to be tried for capital murder in Texas even though the murders had taken place in Mexico, where there is no capital punishment. Everywhere the cameras turned, the courthouse in Brownsville, the Federale headquarters in Matamoros, the killing field, there was Jim Maddox, the Attorney General of Texas, with his face as grave as ashes, mumbling pronouncements on the horror of it all. The real drama was on the Mexican side, and the young Comandante dang well knew it. Benitez was a new breed of federal authority in Mexico, young, educated, tough, moderately honest. Now, isn't that a brilliant kudo? He had a perfect Indian face, 
Bambi eyes, and a shaggy haircut. And he usually wore jeans and a Philadelphia Eagles football jacket. Mexican officials had discovered that Benitez's predecessor and most of his top officers had squirreled away $5.5 million in cash and jewelry in confiscations and bribes. The violent border town of Matamoros was considered the end of the road for a commandante, but Benitez took to the assignment with unexpected zeal. So far, the results had been spectacular. Drug bust had skyrocketed, and now he had captured practically the entire hierarchy of the infamous Hernandez gang. You could see in his eyes that the magic was working. With a contingent of 250 international journalists jammed in the courtyard behind Federale headquarters, the Comandante appeared on the balcony with the four suspects in custody. Warrants had been issued for the arrests of seven others. To the astonishment of American journalists, all four freely answered questions about their roles in the ritual murders. They seemed eager to confess. Elio Hernandez acknowledged that he had been ordained an executioner priest by the cult's high priest and godfather, the fugitive Cuban sadomasochist Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. Constanzo had personally executed our victim. Indeed, the reason victim A had been abducted was the Cubans' explicit order to find an American college student for the ceremony. As TV cameras zoomed in, Elio proudly displayed the badges of his office, groups of satanic brands and symbols on his arms, chest, and back. Even after two days in the Matamoros jail, Elio was undaunted. A Mexican reporter wrote that the young leader of the gang had challenged the Comandante to shoot him. Go ahead, Hernandez, it said. Your bullets will just bounce off. Mexican journalists instinctively played to the morbid. From their point of view, death was far more fascinating than life. This wasn't a story about drugs. It was a story about magic. They described in grisly detail how the Satanist cut the hearts out of victims, much as the ancient Aztecs had. Editors of even the more traditional newspapers saw nothing distasteful in running photographs of the corpses. Sin genitales, read one caption, and I don't think I need to translate that. Forty-eight hours after the story hit the wires, journalists were still flocking to the valley. There wasn't a vacant hotel room or a rent car to be had. A crew representing the Fuji network of Tokyo arrived two days late, just in time to film the most dramatic event of all, the discovery of the 13th body. No sooner had the Fuji crew set up its camera at Rancho Santa Elena than a truckload of federales appeared with one of the prisoners, Sergio Martinez, known within the cult as La Mariposa, or the Butterfly, a pejorative term usually reserved for homosexuals. The handcuffed Martinez led a squad of federales armed with automatic weapons to a spot just outside the corral fence. There he stopped and pointed to the ground. One of the federales handed him a shovel and a pick, and Martinez began to dig. 
Cameramen wearing surgical masks and kerchiefs over their mouths and noses moved in close, and a sound man dangled a boom mic over Martinez's head as reporters fired questions. Martinez kept saying he didn't kill anyone. He just kidnapped and buried them. After 45 minutes, a knee and part of a foot protruded from the ground where Martinez was digging. There was a blast of putrid wind and everyone backed away. Even Martinez, who ignored the machine guns as he gagged and gasped for air. A cameraman removed his surgical mask and offered it to Martinez, who crawled back into the hole and continued digging. The body was that of a man in his thirties, blindfolded and gagged, chest ripped open, and his heart gouged out. Sin genitalis. The Comandante warned the media to stay away from Martinez, which everyone took to mean, don't get between him and our machine guns. But the butterfly seemed incongruously docile and harmless. As Federales removed the 13th body, Martinez leaned against the fence, answering questions put to him by the Spanish-speaking assistant of a New York Times reporter. It was a lengthy interview, and from the emotion in the butterfly's voice, he might have been describing the Mexican Revolution. But the translator returned, shaking her head. What was that all about? asked the Times reporter. Not much, she replied. He just said he didn't know why he did it. The Comandante pandered irresistibly to the media. For example, he made no attempt to seal off the crime scene. During almost any hour of the day, journalists could be found stamping about the ranch, poking in mounds of dirt and in haystacks, looking for something, anything, that no one else had found. American camera crews intentionally overlooked two tiny tennis shoes discarded near a trash pile. They suggested something too horrible for the six o'clock news. A Mexican radio station, however, broadcast a rumor that cultists were still on the prowl and looking for children to kidnap and murder, causing a number of valley parents to take their children out of school. Reporters tied handkerchiefs across their faces as they stepped inside the Devil's Cathedral, a small shed with a tin roof and red tar paper walls. The air was foul and thick. On the concrete floor were the remains of an altar and the accoutrements of black magic. Black candles, cigar butts, bottles of a cheap cane liquor known as aguardiente. There were also white candles, peppers, and pods of garlic used by the white magician brought in by the Comandante to purify the site. Just outside the door, apparently arranged by the Federales so that the media could not miss their significance, were the vessels and instruments of the sacrificial ceremony. Four cauldrons and a machete. Three of the pots were small and contained chicken and goat heads, thousands of pennies, some bones, and some gold beads. The other vessel was a large iron kettle with a cluster of wooden stakes immersed in a thick, evil-smelling goo of blood and body parts, both human and animal. The iron kettle was surprisingly similar to the object described two weeks earlier by the psychic. The ultimate piety and conceit of the cult, its unforgivable stupidity, was the abiding belief that this act of unholy communion would make its members invincible, invisible, 
bulletproof, untouchable by the law of man. Nothing during that whole incredible week since the bodies had been discovered was more remarkable than the show of faith demonstrated by the family of victim A. At a press conference and later after a mass at a local Catholic church in Brownsville, the victim's family spoke calmly and with deep conviction. I don't feel any anger at all, to be honest with you, said the father, adding that he hoped that if and when the killers got to heaven, they would find his son and apologize. The mother asked people to pray for her son's murderers. Maybe the family would fall apart later. Maybe when they got home and started putting their loved one's things away for the last time and knew that a part of their lives was gone forever. Maybe then they would cry out and surrender to the agony of their loss. But there in the valley, in the presence of an insatiable media feeding on the details of butchery and cannibalism, the family demonstrated the grace under pressure that few journalists have ever witnessed. The story goes on to tell about how victim A and his friend met up with two more friends and went down to South Padre Island and one night they decided to go over to Matamoros where the crowd was. Our victim had met a girl, was talking to her, the other guys had left him behind a little bit and then when he finished talking to her he caught up to him, and then they separated again. When they got back together, it was only three. They couldn't figure out where our victim had gone. They searched and searched and searched until all the bars had closed and the streets had been pretty much emptied. There wasn't a trace. It was as though the young man had dropped off the face of the earth. A woman named Sarah Aldretti was a part of this cult. The tie that bound members of the Hernandez gang was drugs, not religion. But as the ceremony got stranger and their involvement got deeper, that changed. The Cuban was probably the first to suggest human sacrifices, but it also may have been Elio or even Sarah Aldretti. Of all the converts, Aldretti was the most zealous and the most mysterious. An exceptionally tall woman with long brown hair and an athletic build, Aldretti lived an uncanny double life. She was an honor student at Texas Southmost College by day and a witch by night. Those who knew her as a cheerleader for the soccer team and a nominee for TSC's Who's Who found her courteous, friendly, and always eager to please. There was nothing to suggest her dark side. Antonio Zavaleta, who knew Aldretti well, said she sat in my anthropology class all semester and a student always present, always friendly. I never saw her wear an emblem, an amulet, a talisman, any sign of black magic. And I'm trained to watch for such things. Never heard her ask a weird question, even when we talked about weird religions. Yet, Aldretti drove across the International Bridge every night in her new Ford Taurus, went to her private room at her parents' home in a middle-class Matamoros neighborhood and prayed before a blood-splattered altar. The police believe she took part in at least one human sacrifice, that she personally selected the victim, a man who had insulted her, lured him to the ranch, and supervised a slow death. At first, the victims were selected from the ranks of enemies. The Cuban made Elio, and later El Duby, 
executioner priests, branding their arms, chests, and backs with a red-hot knife. Elio was a real sweetheart of a priest. He was said to have cut out one rival's heart while the man was still alive. The planned execution of a Matamoros cop named Salcedo produced fireworks when Salcedo pulled out a gun and Elio had to shoot him before the ceremony began. The people that kidnapped our victim drove through the back streets of Matamoros and passed an industrial district. After a while, the number of small bars and vendors' huts began to thin out and newly planted fields stretched off into the distance. The country air smelled musty and overused. There was a quarter moon and by its light, the young man might have had a chance to see that his kidnappers were his own age. Seraphine had graduated from Nimitz High School in 1986, that was in Houston, the same year our victim graduated from Santa Fe High School. Both of them had played baseball. They could have been on the same team, playing by the same rules. By Friday of the week after the discovery of the bodies, the story had lost steam and dropped off page one. The victim's family had gone home, and so had the politicians and most of the media. Nobody had claimed the $15,000 reward, though an extortionist in the Galveston County Jail had tried to hit on the victim's family for ransom. Few noticed and fewer stopped to record the activities of the peasants and the campesinos who had come down from mountain villages or traveled sometimes hundreds of miles from their ejidos looking for lost loved ones among the rows of mutilated corpses. Three weeks later, Mexico City police surrounded the building where the gang was hiding. The Cuban went berserk. He began firing his machine gun and tossing bundles of money out of the fourth floor window. Constanzo had taken the precaution of ordaining El Duby and transferring to him the power to make human sacrifices. Now he commanded El Duby to perform the ultimate ritual. Constanzo wanted to die with his lover and bodyguard, Martin Quintana Rodriguez. El Duby hesitated, but the Cuban slapped him and warned him that failure to carry out this last assignment would make it hard on him in hell. As if being in hell wouldn't be hard enough. Constanzo sat on the stool in the closet and positioned his lover beside him. Then he nodded. El Duby squeezed the trigger of his machine gun. When police stormed the apartment a few minutes later, El Duby, Aldretti, and three others surrendered quietly. As for the Devil's Ranch where victim A and others were sacrificed, it remained a citadel of black magic until a proper purification ceremony. One quiet Sunday afternoon when no one was looking, the Federales slipped out there with a curandero. He went inside the shed mumbled incantations, sprinkled salt on the floor, and made the sign of the cross. Then, Federales splashed gasoline over the shed and burned it to the ground. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal activity the podcast Aaron reads listener stories mostly ghost stories sometimes UFOs sometimes cryptids on Tuesday Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's horror show 
different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour and Unexplained Cases. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.